This is my Papa's podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Happy Juneteenth. Enjoy. Um, okay, so first of all, I haven't seen you in years. You left Jordan in 2015? Yes. And you moved back to well, I moved well, to Texas. Houston, right. Yes, I'm in Dallas, actually. Oh, my gosh. Oh, did you originally move to Houston? No, we came straight to Dallas. Okay. Yeah, straight to Dallas. I have a cousin that lives like 15 minutes from us. So he's the one that introduced us to this Texas life. And we were like, yes, let's go. Oh, my goodness. Now, do y'all have a media room? We do. Yo, everybody in Texas has a media room. <laughs> got to have the yes. media room. We do. Ours is in the center upstairs, and then all the rooms are surrounding it. Man. It's pretty cool. It's cool. It's different living, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, let me give the, <clears throat> the intro. Good evening, listeners, and welcome to NPO, the Nurse Practitioner Oddcast. I am your host, JD the NP. Thanks for tuning in. With us in the studio tonight is Jennifer Ellison, family nurse practitioner, um, and ex-colleague of mine, I say former colleague of mine. Um, we worked together at the Anthony Jordan Health Center in Rochester, New York. Um, and that's, yeah, so let's let's start there. Now, have you seen Jordan's posting? Are you friends with like Terry Reagan on Facebook or anybody? I am, I am. I saw them, you know, um, taking a knee. I thought it was awesome, all that they were doing. Um, so I am still friends with everyone in Jordan. Yeah, I, I think it's hard to, to work someplace like that and come out of it not being friends with everybody. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Very family-oriented kind of place, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so for for the listeners that don't know, that haven't been paying attention, um, the Nurse Practitioner Oddcast stands with Black Lives Matter, and we are pivoting our usual programming this month and, and for future months, depending on how long it takes to get this, you know, resolved, which is funny to say, I mean, not funny at all, but what, you know, resolution, right? Like what, where, where are we going? It is crazy. Shit is just crazy right now. And as, as well, it should be. Um, but in any event, so the goal of, of NPO right now is to lend the platform to black voices in healthcare because they're the most important voices in my opinion to be heard right now. And these are the only conversations worth having. I, I can't imagine, you know, chattering on about, you know, routine healthcare stuff when the streets of America are burning and the streets of America have, you know, police outfitted like military units, you so, know, in, in riot gear attacking citizens on American soil. It's just, it's insane to me. So I just wanted to, you know, put that out there in case somebody tuned in and was like, oh, what's this all about? Um, but I, you know, the, the small amount of listeners that I do have, I'm, I'm fairly certain are down. So we'll, we'll keep going with that. So let's, and I'm not going to talk this much for the whole thing. This is just all, you know, I'm just <laughs> setting, setting the stage. Um, uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for being here. Oh, I really, I really, really appreciate it. And, um, you know, when we work together at Jordan, so for those who don't know, Jordan is in the, it's in the Crescent. Mm-hmm. Right. And I've, I've explained the Crescent on my previous episode with Dr. Kojo Sarfo. Um, it is an area of socioeconomic depression. And that's even an understatement in, yeah. in Rochester, New York. Um, some people call it the fatal Crescent because it's it's where the, the highest you know number of homicides occur mm-hmm. every year. Um, but it is basically uh, a war zone. It is a is it, it is a impoverished wasteland slash war zone, oh, you know. There's no grocery stores, really. Um, And it's like, honestly, probably like any other severely impoverished area in the rest of the United States. You know, you got your corner stores, um, you got your liquor stores, but what you don't have is access to fresh food, uh, vegetables, you know, quality after school programs for kids. Um, But what we do have and what I'm I'm proud of, of having worked at Jordan is we have quality health care. Mm-hmm. Um, in that area so that's again that's as much as i'm going to talk mm-hmm. mrs ellison please tell us all about you tell us about your your healthcare journey how you got here and anything else you want to talk about the floor is 100 percent yours 
Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, um, I started out as a nurse practitioner. I opened a pediatric office in the Bronx for Dr. Obilo, which is Obilo Pediatrics, and I used to run that. And then I decided, um, that was like my first year as a nurse practitioner in 2010, and I decided that I wanted to give back a little bit more. Um, excuse my son in the background. Uh, <laughs> so I... Um, then went to Jordan, and Jordan um, provided me um, HSA program, um, not HSA, um, HRSA, where they kind of give us some reimbursement for working yeah, in the inner city. The NHSC yeah. grant. Yeah, so I was able to get into that, and I just moved out of Jersey and went straight to New York by myself, single woman, just did whatever, and um, it was very eye-opening because even though I came from Jersey, which was... 15 minutes from the Bronx, so I'm a city girl um, at heart, but um, Rochester was um, oppressed differently, just oppressed differently. Um, the young women um, that I saw there, um, you know, when you saw treated one STD for the week, you're treating that same STD with everyone because everyone's sleeping together. Like, it's just so hard. Um, you know, you just want to educate them um, so that they know it doesn't have to be this way, you know? Um, it's just a lot that goes on there. So I spent for four and a half years there. And then I met my husband there, of course, and we moved out to Dallas just looking for a different life because we had a child, a young child, which I just wasn't ready to have to fight um, the streets of Rochester with a little black boy. Um, mm. I, didn't really, I didn't really grow up in the heart of Patterson, New Jersey, which is where I'm originally from. I grew up there, but I went to private school all my life. Um, I was kind of sheltered a little bit. My mom, we're, we're Jamaican family. Um, Jamaican people are very strict, and she just kind of kept us in, and we went to private school. So I didn't really get to experience the hood, per se, and Rochester really opened my eyes differently. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't know that I wanted to, I, I don't want to fight that kind of battle, because my husband is from the streets of Rochester, and he grew up on Genesee Street. Oh, no yeah. shit. I didn't know that. Yeah, you know, Tristan was uh, working at Anthony Jordan, so he was giving back to his community. Um, but he was in those streets, and he played with guns like everybody else, and he knows that life. So um, he is a reformed man, you know, um, but, you know, we knew those streets. And even though I lived in Greece, which was the suburbs, it was just like, that's a hop, skip, and a jump. It's not that far. Right. His dad moved out to the Brighton area to kind of get him out of the area. And he just took for the sure. bus and went right sure. out there every day. Yeah. He didn't care, yeah. you know. So you know how teenage boys are going to be. And I just didn't want to fight that battle. I, not that you're not going to have a battle anywhere you move to with a teenage boy. But um, I just wanted to be able to give him the best I could possibly give him in running from that fight. Um, and so Tristan definitely agreed. And Dallas was it. So this is, you know, the land of football and all the sports and all of that. And here we are in the middle of COVID and don't know what sports is going to be like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so now you mentioned it's, I have to just plug the ROC because a lot of people, when you tell them, first of all, when you say oh, I'm from New York, they're like, oh, you're from New York City. What are you from Manhattan? Are you from Brooklyn? No, no, no. I'm, I'm from, I'm from Rochester. Okay. And they're like, they're like Rochester. I'm like, no, no, Rochester. And they're like, oh, you just, you're from upstate, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But if you live here and you're from here or you spend time here, you know that that's not exactly the case. Right. We have a significant amount of, you know, street violence. And as you mentioned, you know, the streets, is it's a big influence on young people, particularly, you know, those that live closer to the heart of the city. Um, you know, I, I remember, and I, I, I hope I don't get anybody in trouble for this, but when when we worked at Jordan, you know, Tuan and Marcus, we'd sit up in the front and watch the security feed off of Flint. And we'd, we'd see people out there just, you know, boxing and doing whatever, um, you know, and holding, I mean, they'd be carrying guns and, and, um, yeah, it's, it's a different environment. So certainly as a parent myself, you know, and I, I can't even say as a parent, because as a black parent, there has to be so much more that you worry about for your kids. Can you, I mean, you don't have to talk about that if you don't want to, but can you talk yeah, about that? Absolutely. I 
think that um, it wasn't necessarily that, you know, I had a child per se. Um, having a little girl, my battle would have been different. Like, you try not to let her get pregnant. That, you know, in the streets of Rochester, because it's the hood and the things that these kids get into. But um, a little black boy, um, you know, my concern was, you know, Tristan said he played with guns when he was nine. Nine, nine years old, you're playing with guns. And um, how is it at 13, 14, you are in these streets playing around? And his parents tried. You know, they really tried. It's not that they didn't. Um, so um, just the, the things that black men go through is completely different. Um, you know, walking down the street and not knowing whether or not that cop that's walking the beat is going to think that you're you know, loitering at this point, and you're really just hanging out with your friends. Um, you know, even in Jersey, my brother, we were, he was in front of my house um, one evening, just sitting in front of the um, stoop, and there were some guys that were walking by, and he got arrested with those guys who were walking by because he was sitting on our stoop in Jersey. And my mother, like, had to come home from work. She worked in New York, and it just was a whole mess. And they, of course, dropped the case because he was in front of his house sitting down. He didn't even know the guys. And because he was a black boy sitting there, you know? So those kind of um, just inequities that go on. And um, don't get me wrong, Texas has it, too. Um, Texas actually wasn't emancipated. It was one of the last um, states to be emancipated. So um, it's here. It, it's just he's not in the city, and it's just not. It's nothing. If we can afford a bigger life, you know, for our money, and he doesn't have to be in the streets and that kind of thing to play and enjoy his friends. So we just thought this would this would benefit us at this point. But for the most part, there's always going to be a struggle. Um, it's just trying to put him in the best environment we could. We just was trying, just because we we when you know something is close to home, when my husband has lived this life. You, you know what you have to do is to really leave at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, um, the thing that Tristan dealt with, my husband, is that he was in the streets at one time and maturing and becoming a nurse and getting out the streets. He no longer looked at his enemies, but his enemies were still looking at him. Sure, sure. And so we would go out to restaurants or go somewhere in Rochester and you know, people that he used to have street wars with were, like, circling us and coming back around and watching us, like, you know, and he wasn't even in the streets years at that point, and they still had a vendetta against him, you know, so the, the, the best thing is, let's just get on out of here so that I don't lose my husband, and he doesn't lose his dad, yeah. because these people are still after you for something as little as you live on the east side, you know? So it's it's just, you know, you get into, there's, there's black on black crime, there's, you know, police brutality, there's all, it's all of it is happening in Rochester. It's all happening. Um, you know, there's always some, some degree of disparity that's going on and people just not um, treating each other right. I think this is all, at the end of the day, it's a matter of the heart. You know, you don't have to hate someone or hate, you know, hate people for such little things, such minute reasons. And there's just a lot of hate um, in people's hearts. You know, that's really what all of this is about at the end of the day, I think. So talking about, I, I want to ask more about the parenting thing, because that's something that I think at least hopefully, all people who are parents, regardless of whether they are melanin deficient or whether they are black, can really kind of come together on it, right? We all want what's best for our kids. Mm -hmm. And we don't want our kids to have to grow up and be afraid, Right. We don't want our kids to have to grow up and, and be faced with these impossible situations, with these impossible choices or living somewhere, for example, like in the Crescent, where people are in survival mode 100 percent of the time, 100 percent of the time. And the, the health outcomes that that creates long term, you, you can't even put a number on that. You can't quantify that. So in terms of 
your own experience with, you know, your husband, you know, stepping away from the street life and, and getting into healthcare and you guys deciding, listen, we need to get out of here. We need to get our son out of here. Um, do you think that other parents who are black are struggling? And this is, this sounds like a real stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Do you think that other parents who are black struggle with the same things and worse? And I'm asking you to, to teach me about that because I'm white and you know, the things that I'm afraid of for my kids, we we're all afraid for our kids. And then when you add that extra layer of, you know, being black, I just, I, I, can't, I can't wrap my head around it. So the only thing I can do is listen to my black brothers and sisters when they tell me about their own experience with it. I definitely think there are other parents and mothers that are single, especially I think mothers worry about their kids when they're single so much. I'm sure dads too. Um, um, but uh, fathers um, teach their sons to be tough. So, you know, but moms are warriors. Um, and I think that um, just in working, even in the Bronx, the moms that wish they could get out, but you're stuck in this cycle, depending on the job that you have, um, your single mother trying to make it work. And, you know, the city is convenient and, um, you know, it's, it's comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, you just know it. So, um, I've always just been that adventure person. I'm just like, okay, I'm up and I'm going. Um, but, and I also have, you know, the education and I have the finances to be able to make that move. Everybody mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily have that. Um, so even they wish they can get out. A lot of people go to places like Atlanta because Atlanta is even more cost effective and they get more for their money. And it's hard. Um, I've heard stories of people going to Atlanta from Rochester they drag their sons from Rochester into Atlanta and they end up back in Rochester because they couldn't make it. Um, just trying to get away from all the mess, um, trying to get their kids out. You know, we personally know families in Rochester that has taken their kids away. And at Georgia seems to have been the place uh, for a lot of people in Rochester because it's cost effective. It's not too far from other family members, but it's far enough that they're not in the heart of Rochester. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really the place that a lot of parents tried to get their kids out of the hood. And, you know, more, more than not, they end up back because finding a job, holding a job, um, being able to, you know, afford things, it's just hard for them. And Atlanta is pretty cost effective and it's still hard. Um, and if you don't have family support, you know, all those kind of things make a difference. And if all your family's in Rochester or any other city that you're in that's um, your comfort and your home, it's hard to try to step out and be very independent and you have these kids and not have someone call CPS on your kids because you have to go to work and leave them home because you got to go make that dollar, but you have no one to watch them. Like, the struggle for these moms is, um, and, and dads is very difficult. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, culturally, sometimes we're louder than the next person. And, you know, the first thing people want to do is call the cops if the kids are making noise and you really want your kids to be quiet because you, you went to work and it just turns into a whole mess. So, you know, um, parents really struggle. And I'm certain parents want to get their kids out um, of the, you know, the endangerment. But... Financially, it doesn't seem feasible. I know a lot of people in Rochester that have never even been to Buffalo. They don't leave Rochester because they don't know any better. They've never left Rochester. I was in shock. Right. You know, so um, fear. I think fear sets people back. Um, Generations of just being complacent and living with, um, not expecting more, the degree of oppression that is there. they, they, they don't, sometimes you, you can't mentally fathom something. You can think of it and don't think that you are worthy enough um, to even strive for it. And that, that wow. is definitely in Rochester. So what you're describing almost is a, is a blanket of hopelessness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it's, um, I remember being at the clinic and so many moms that I did like physicals for, um, they would drag their daughters in there. Even if they're not doing a physical, they'll be like, you see her? She's a black doctor. She's a doctor. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and you know, of course I'm a nurse practitioner, but that's the term they use, of course, cause that's, sure, you know, sure. they know, but, um, they, they would bring them in there, and even if nothing was wrong with them, sometimes I would be like, so what you guys come in for today? I needed her to see you. I needed her to see what you're doing, and for her to stop doing what she's doing, she, she can make something of herself. You know? Um, sad. And two, that, I mean, that's a lot of, uh, a lot of pressure, because when, when I walk out of the house, right, I don't represent all of white America. I don't represent all white people everywhere. I feel like from what I've been told from my black colleagues that black with a capital B, by the way, my black colleagues that when they are out and about and doing their thing, they are looked at as a, a representation of all black people everywhere. Absolutely. And that the, the pressure of that, mm-hmm. right? So on the one hand, that is that has to feel amazing that you can be a role model. And on the other hand, that has to feel a little bit ridiculous. Like, why should it be this way? Why isn't it just automatic that young girls that are black or young boys that are black can be like, I'm going to be an astronaut. Cool. I'm going to be a doctor. Cool. Why is it so easy for and this is a big question and I apologize if I put my foot in my mouth at all during this, but I just, I want to understand and I want things to be said that need to be said. Why is it so easy for little white kids to be like, I'm going to be an astronaut. Cool. And they can see that as a possibility. And it's not as easy for little black kids or little kids of color to have that same aspiration and have that same serious thought that that could actually happen to them? Um, So I think that depending on the type of school, um, the household training, um, what's going on. (laughs) Hey, little man. Hey. How you doing? (laughs) Good. Good. (laughs) Um, I think depending on what the the household upbringing is, I think that makes a big difference. In addition to... um, I just think that schools, um, Sorry. the inner city schools are not necessarily gearing kids towards that. They're just trying to control the kids sometimes right. um, for the most part. Um, a lot of times in my physicals with the little kids, that would be my thing. Um, what are you going to be when you grow up? Some of them would not know at five and six, no imagination. Yep. And I would say that's your assignment for the next time I see you, you got to tell me something. Um, and it's just so sad, you know, I, you know, we talk to them about different stuff, like the firefighters and, you know, policemen and, you know, being all these other things. It doesn't have to be, you know, blue collar work, but you could want to be an artist, whatever, you know, um, it's just hard, I think, because, um, if your parents didn't have that, um, if your parents, all they knew was to survive and your kids would be all right, make sure there's food on the table and not really having conversations, there's a lack of, um, you know, discussion and nurturing in your household um, because everyone's in survival mode. Yeah. Yes. You know, so I think that has a lot to do with why um, those things aren't ingrained. Um, those things aren't ingrained in, um, in folks. I think that these kids are just not being given 100%. You know, the schools aren't funded the same in public schools. Um, inner city public schools aren't funded the same. Um, those teachers are underpaid. They are being abused in kind of ways um you know um, everyone has some degree of um, inequality happening for them in each situation so it, it you know they're all fighting against each other and they really you know some teachers are so compassionate but they're just not given the tools to be able to provide for these kids can't give them the time that they want to because you have the troubled kids you have the this you have you know these kids aren't getting a fair shot so a couple things that you mentioned. One, you're you're talking about this transgenerational hopelessness, trans transgenerational trauma, where you have you know like I would see kids in the clinic, and 
the parents just had never read a book to the kid and the kid was two and a half years old. And I said, well, well, what are you doing? You know, oh, he likes YouTube. And I'm like, no, like you gotta, you gotta talk to your child. You gotta sing to your child. You gotta read your child some books, you know? And we had, um, oh, what was the program that we had? Reach out and read. Yeah. And we could, and we could just shower the, I would shower these kids with books all day yeah. long, man, because it's that kind of interaction. But, but the parent, it, I'm not faulting the parent either because they just, they didn't know any better right. because of yeah. this, you know, this chain of history, this, and I, I did yeah. not mean to use the word chain, but legit this chain of history that has now ended up with them, you know, they're the latest link. And they don't know any better because of the ways the links before them behaved and thought and felt because of the systematic oppression. Um, and Rochester City Schools are some of the worst in the country. They are some of the worst public schools in the country. And Mayor Warren, I don't care if you get mad at me for saying this. Um, you're, you're doing a bad job getting these schools up to par. And when RPD is outfitted with millions of dollars worth of military gear and you can't find money in your budget to make the schools a better place to keep these kids safe and to keep these kids learning and to give these kids hope, then you fucking up. Um, and that's my two cents on that. I definitely agree. Now, having been, you are highly educated, highly professional, highly intelligent. Thank you. And when, oh, you're well, that, that wasn't me complimenting me. That was, that was just an <laughs> observation, right? That's just, that's fact. When you, when you are walking down the street, do you feel like if a police officer sees you or a white person sees you or anybody sees you, do you feel that that's the first thing they think? Or do you feel like, what is... I don't even think they think that when I go into the room sometimes to see a patient. Get out. Yeah. Tell oh. me more about that. <laughs> um... I, it happened in Rochester. Um, it happens out here. Um, you know, I do some home care sometimes. So it's happened at home care. But, um, you know, the eyes get big when I walk in the room. Is anyone else coming in the room after me? Nope, just me. Well, or so I've had people leave the clinic because they do not want to see a black female. And For I real? Said, yeah, well, yeah, go with God. Enjoy oh, that. Oh, my God. There's another clinic, probably like our clinic, if you want to stay within our chain. There's another one like 20 miles away if you would like to go there. Enjoy that. They're missing out. But, um, yeah, I mean, I get it in the rooms, outside the rooms. Absolutely. So to, to the point, how do we make white America understand this shit? I don't know that you can make. I don't know that you can make people um, understand it. They have to just be empathetic to every individual. You can't just judge folks just because of their color. Give them a chance. You know, um, when you meet your white counterpart, you don't know their history. You get to know them. Um, so why do you see a black person and you automatically judge and think that they're this ghetto person or they don't have this and don't have that um you know just because black man has on a hoodie doesn't mean that he's you know a thug he could just like wearing hoodies and being relaxed that could be a brain surgeon you have no idea who that person is right. if i wear it's a hoodie about... i'm chilly if You're a black right. man wears a hoodie he's a thug exactly. so my friend be... kojo I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say that people just need to be humane and, and stop nitpicking and judging before they even get to know a person. Everyone deserves a chance. So there's a chain on social media right now of videos. Um, and my friend Kojo, uh, so on TikTok, are you on TikTok at all? Oh my gosh, my sister sent me a video all the time. It's so funny. <laughs> TikTok is crazy. And and there's there's a there's a, a video chain now so somebody posts it and then someone else will duet it and then someone else will duet it and it's this this is thing and there is a physician a black physician you know wearing his his lab coat his scrubs and he says you know if you if you love me in my white coat or if you respect me in my white coat and then you know the, he puts his hand up and then all of a sudden he's in a hoodie he's like don't hate me in my hoodie or don't fear me in my hoodie and 
it's it's such a deep thing when even just a simple change of clothes changes somebody's perception of who and what you are and what you represent. And I, I don't know what to do about that, you know. Um, and that's that's why I'm conducting this stuff. That's why I'm that's why I'm asking for people to come on and, and do these interviews, so that one, so that I can learn, because I certainly don't know everything, and two, so that hopefully the you know we can get that message out. That's simple enough. For people to get it because to me it's simple but i don't think it's simple to everybody some people their religion and their thoughts is all there is a part of their generational curse too or you know there's still kkk out here how are you going to change the thoughts of those folks you know um i just feel like if the world decided that they were going to be um, more conscious and loving to each other instead of just always just putting up this barrier and just deciding they're not going to have the black person in their life or they don't want that black person to care for them or they just don't, you know, who cares if they're black? Who cares if they're Spanish? If they have the credentials? I, I don't know that there is anything other than the fact that people have to want to make a change. We can put all the laws and rules that we want because, you know, we have all of those policies that, you know, you have to have a certain amount of black people in your business. And, you know, all of these things are in place, but it doesn't change who people are outside of their business world. Um, it's going to be just a facade. It can, it'll continue to be that until people decide that they want to do better. You have to, you can't possibly, we shouldn't have to mistreat the opposite race for them to feel like, oh, that's what they meant. You don't, you don't need to be sitting in my shoes. I'm telling you that my shoes are uncomfortable. Right. You know, so I don't, yeah, and I don't really have the answer for that either because, you know, that's almost like. You know, Christianity, we want to change the hearts of people and you want people to love God and all of this, but you have to want to do it. You can't, you know, it's the same concept. I can't make you do anything. You can give you the information and you can decide to take it. And how, I mean, how deep in the collective history does it go when you have Christians or people who claim to be Christian, because there's a difference, Mm -hmm. white evangelical Christians who are so, I don't even know what the word is for it, maybe willfully ignorant, that they think that a little baby born in the Middle East over 2,000 years ago was white. Because <laughs> anthropologically speaking, I'm telling you, that's that's not how this works. Right. Oh my gosh, I have a friend who always says like, I mean, how are people reading the Bible and hearing about the Lord's hair is so coarse and they think he's a Caucasian man and, right. you know. Um, um, and all the apostles, too. Like, they, they didn't bus in white people from, you know, Massachusetts to be the apostles. They exactly. came from the Middle East, too. So they were all people of color. People love different types of roses and different types of lilies and all the beauty and all of that. That's the same thing. We are all different people and there's beauty in it. There's beauty in every different culture. So I don't know how all of this happened. We all bleed blood saying, you know, if you need transfusion, sorry. Are you really going to care about whether or not I'm black? You're trying to live. Right. And of course, there are people like that. But for the most part, anyone who wants the transfusion is not going to care at that point. Thank you for describing it that way with the flowers. That is the most beautiful sentiment I think I've heard, you know, because we, as scientists, we talk about biodiversity and we talk about how biodiversity is a requirement for life to, to flourish, to, to grow. 
And why does that stop at the, at the color of somebody's skin? It's ridiculous. And not that, yeah. All right, so this is our special Juneteenth episode. Tell me about Juneteenth and so, what it means to you. So when I first came to Texas, it was the first time I heard of Juneteenth. So I don't know if that is because I'm from the East Coast or if that is because I'm of Jamaican descent. I have never heard of this. But apparently, June 19th is the day of complete emancipation for Black individuals. Um, and I did not know that until I got here. I actually was working in a med spa. And when I first got here, I just did a couple of different jobs. And I was being a nurse practitioner of med spa. And one of the guys like that... Botox injections and stuff? Yeah, just like um, trigger point injections and all of that. So um, one of the guys that worked there, he was like, you're working on June 19th? I said, yeah, why? why not? He was like, oh, no. We're going to the festival. We're doing all of that. We celebrate. They're celebrating this. It is a big thing in the South. They, it is like 4th of July. So, um, which I, I, I can understand it. I, I just feel like, although I've had my degree of, um, you know, ra racism impact in my life, I just never even thought of that. Like, to, I never even thought to want to celebrate that. You know, we have Black History Month and acknowledge all of our, um, ancestors and all of that but man they have a whole day for this that they have festivals and they do all i think the black cowboys come out and they do all kinds of things it is something very very real to them and it's almost 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 feel bad that we still have to be making sure that people know that juneteenth is to be honored you know well, a lot of businesses have done an about face right now. Um, you know, you're because they're doing it for PR mm -hmm. and they're, they're doing it for clout. Um, and they're saying, you know, and a lot, a lot of people might even say the same for, for me and what I'm doing with this podcast. And that's fine. You can say what you want. You know, I, I know what my intention is, but you know, like Nike now they're giving employees off on Juneteenth. And I think one of the other, you know, major employers, and you mentioned that it's like Fourth of July, and I think that it would be it would be like Fourth of July if the British were still around fucking with us and still mm. telling us that we weren't as good as British and we weren't, you know, like that's because you know Fourth of July, British were gone, and then all of a sudden this is America and mm. Juneteenth, you know, the Emancipation, the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, you know, the Fourteenth Amendment, and all of that. And yet, is slavery really gone? Right. We're still living it um, to some degree, you know. Um, and they're celebrating, I guess, as much, as, as much freedom as we get. I guess, I'm sure that's what they're celebrating. But the reality is there's so many shackles that are still on the inner cities. And, you know, why isn't there grocery stores there? You know, why not? Well, isn't there better education? It's almost like a systemic cycle where they're just keeping the area down, not really wanting you to come up. And then when it gets gentrified, like you get put. Hmm. Almost. <laughs> almost. So, I mean, Rochester back in the day used to be a just thriving metropolis you know it's a it's one of the last vestiges of the rust belt here in the northeast and we were a manufacturing city um and and everybody lived in the city everybody lived mm -hmm. together and the city planners back then i mean we had a subway we not a subway restaurant we had an actual underground train mm -hmm. um we, we had a subway and we had you know there was a, a, there was once a plan for a canal system you know like boats on the canal to transport people around and rit was right in the city and mm. everything was in the city and you could get everything you needed and then there was the urban exodus all of the people who could afford it which were predominantly white people left 
and they left the city and they left the city to rot. And that's the same story, you know, all across the country. And, you know, the question is, how do we, how do we fix it? You know, um, man, you didn't know you were going to come on and have me asking you all these questions. Yeah. How do we fix it? Give me the answer. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's just, I don't understand why it's not more obvious. Um, because I think, I, go ahead. I think it's pretty obvious to those who are doing it. I think they, you know, they have their plan um, and they're okay with it. Um, money, they say, is the root of all evil, right? So wherever the money is at is where people are going to go. If they feel a certain way about a certain crowd of folks, they're not going to want to invest. Um, so they're taking their money where they want to put it. And when they feel as though, oh, that's right where we want to go, where they live, all we got to do is make everything cost more. They'll be gone in five minutes. Can't stay there. Right. You know how they know how to run you out. They know how to keep you there. Which it makes no sense to me. If you look at you know the the wonders of the world, right? You look at the Great Pyramids. You look at you know uh, I don't know if Machu Picchu is considered one of the one of the wonders of the world. You look at the Great Wall of China. You look at all you know the ancient wonders of the world, the modern wonders of the world. Black people built those damn pyramids. Mm-hmm. Black people built, you know, people of color built Machu Picchu, mm-hmm. right? All of these things were done, and, and you know, okay, white people built Stonehenge, cool. Stonehenge is pretty cool, but I mean, it's not the Great Pyramids, yeah, right? Yeah. So, w- when you say you know people don't want to invest in communities of color, the question comes down to why? Because there's absolutely no empirical evidence that you know, communities of color are any less worthy of investment than white communities. You know, I mean, the, the first successful heart transplant, black man, mm-hmm. right? Like it's, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. But then you have, again, I got to come back to the police, you know, the, the police and the police brutality and, and white communities are under-policed and black communities are over-policed. And then you have these, dum-dums spouting off all these statistics about you know higher rates of crime and lower rates of crime well you're skewing the statistics by your policing practices and from a from a city planning perspective because it has to be a systemic a systemic change absolutely it has to be everyone has to be on board who's a part of the system to be able to make a change if not it's not going to work they have to be able to come together and agree on reformation all around. There's no other way. So but then, when you when you have when you have black people who want to build great things, who mm-hmm. want to do great things, who want to build prosperous communities, and then you have the history, which we're not taught in school, by the way, in public school in America of the Greenwood neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma. When you read about Black Wall Street, that was one of the most prosperous areas in the entire state, if not the entire country. And guess what? The KKK didn't like it. So they got in their fertilizer planes and they dropped Molotov cocktails and they leveled that neighborhood and they killed those people. They engaged in an act of genocide because they were prosperous and they didn't like it. So when you have communities of color, I I can imagine that people are sitting in those communities being like, well, I'm not going to do that because then this, mm-hmm. right? Like there's, there's a knee and I don't mean, to, I don't mean to be out of line. There is a, a, a knee on the collective neck of black people all around the country. And I don't even have anything else to say about that other than it's got to stop. So you mentioned that uh, everybody involved needs to be part of the reform and you mean top to bottom. Yes. So it's almost sounds like you want us to get out and vote. Everyone needs to vote. We all need to vote. Um, Don't feel like your vote doesn't count. We have to. We have to at least try. 
I mean, we all know that, you know, there's talks of the cheating and, you know, all of those things. But we have to at least try um, because our vote is the same thing as us going out and writing and protesting. That is our try. We need to try. um, Use what we have. Use what we've been liberated to be able to do. The voting right now, have you seen what's happening in Georgia? Where they shut down a majority of polling, like 65%, I think is the number, don't quote me on that, of polling places. And the constituents in those districts were over 90% people of color. And again, you know, I, I say tongue in cheek, it's almost like they planned it, but legit, it's it's planned. This shit's planned. All the way. All the way. You know, power is something people really take advantage of. They have the power to do these things, and then when they get caught, what happens? Right? Because they still have the power at the end of the day. They still have guns. They still have Mm -hmm. guns. It's just so ugly. All so ugly. And it it doesn't need to be. Mm-mm. But it is. Now, as far as healthcare outcomes in our patients of color, in our patients from socioeconomically depressed areas, we know that racism is a public health crisis because we know that, for, for example, you know, black women are less likely to be believed when they're in pain mm-hmm. than white women. And the, the, the rate of infant mortality, the rate of black women who die in childbirth is medieval. It's medieval. I don't have the statistics off the top of my head, and I should have researched that before the program. So for that, I apologize. Um, but they are widely available. I think in 2018, it was about uh, 28% higher than any other race. In the United States, where we have all kinds of technology and all of the education, um, that is happening here. We don't have those terrible hospitals like they have in third world countries. We have the best equipment, and these women are 28% higher. That was 2018, but 28% higher. But still, that's that's ten white women having babies. Nobody dies. That's ten black women having babies. Three people die. Yes. That's crazy. It's scary. And it's, so it's the it's the human factor. If we have the best equipment and we have the best training, then it's it's a hundred percent the human factor. Mm-hmm. Has to be some degree of negligence going on or human error in some way. But after you documented and you documented everything and this still happened, it's not looking right. No, it definitely does not look right. So at an institutional level, it is incumbent upon healthcare providers, such as myself, such as yourself, to, in my opinion, go the extra mile with historically disenfranchised or historically mistreated people. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Cause I get a lot of, I get a lot of pushback as a, and I don't, I honestly, again, I don't care. You know, I've been called a race trader. I've been called color. Sorry. I've been called all this shit by all these ignorant people. And to me, it's stupid. Um, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, the author, talked about, you know, humanism and being a humanist and being a secular humanist. And to me, I think right now it's not enough to be a humanist. You know, um, I read this, this, uh, these articles about, you know, you have to be anti-racist. You can't just be a humanist. You can't just, you know, do your own thing off in the corner and know that you're doing the right thing. You have to be an exemplar. And so one of the things I talk about is when I have a black patient, I'm going to spend more time with that patient. 
which is not to say I'm going to neglect the care of my white patients. I'm not, right? I give great care. I'm going to give a little bit extra to my black patients. And I think that's the right thing to do. I really do. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think that that's important because um, just because of the generational issues, you have to develop a degree of trust from them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I didn't keep it very real with my patients when I was in the room with them, they would hesitate to tell me certain things. Sure. So, you know, you have to develop. So, so it may take a little bit more time with them to get them to open up so you can truly care for them appropriately. Um, every person is a different individual. Um, you know, how we tend to our Indian population is different from how we would tend to, you know, our Hispanic population. So um, sure. with the black community, I do believe that they need a little bit more time um, to develop a trust and be able to kind of give you everything so that you can truly care for them. Like what is happening in your home? What is happening in your life? What is the problem? Let's try to fix it together. Because we, we know from, from experience and from data collected that black patients come to the clinic with a higher degree of mistrust already. Absolutely. And they don't want to come to the doctor because they don't trust the doctor. Right. The doctor speaking, you know, uh, in broad strokes, not necessarily, you know, nurse practitioners or, or PAs. So building that trust takes more time is what you're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. I like that. I like that. I like it when people put words to things that I do, but I'm not bright enough to, to articulate what exactly I'm doing and why. I just I know that I'm doing the right thing and I know why I'm doing the right thing. So in case anybody didn't read the news, um, the 45th president of the United States has decided to reschedule his rally that was planned for Juneteenth in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which I I was pegging as just a big, gigantic dog whistle to his white supremacist friends. But apparently uh, somebody told him that it was going to hurt his chances for reelection. So he decided to reschedule that. Political moves, huh? Political moves, indeed, <laughs> indeed. And, you know, one of the things that I hate to think about is that the election of, I'm not even going to say this man because he's he is not, um, was a direct result of the anger that far-right white people had over having eight years of a black president. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it was a pendulum swinging. I remember when he was being elected, I was working for the VA. Oh, the vets just knew Trump was going to change everything for them. Mm. They just knew. Well, they, they have that feeling, right? They have that conviction. And it's 100% misplaced. And they've all been played. And those that, are, that, are, that have enough of an ability to, to self-examine, they know that they've been played. Yeah, and they, they come back play. around, right? They know. It's scary to know, you know, what's coming. Say more about that. I just don't know that we, I don't, I'm not necessarily confident in the counterparts. Yeah. So, just don't know what's coming. You know, the thing about following anyone's work is that you have to be able to clean up the pieces mm. that they messed up. Um, and of course, keep all the stuff that they had going well, keep it going well, or even better. Um, so I just don't necessarily know that I have confidence in everyone else who is running. Yeah. So we are in a place where um, even if they are not pleased with the work he has done, we run the risk of him possibly getting reelected. So. Oh my God, don't even say that. I would think we run that risk, though. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. No one really, no one, I, I think a lot of people have the same sentiment as me, not very confident in the counterparts. 
But um, I think we all need to just think that he's he's pretty dangerous and reckless. A hundred percent. He's reckless for our country. You know, I think he's gone through enough of the recklessness. So it's okay to give somebody else a chance. Yeah, I mean, when you have George W. Bush looking pretty great in comparison, that should tell you something. Mm-hmm. That should tell you something. And I mean, he's, you know, W has has stepped up and and said some things and done some things that you know are laudable I would say um, for the for the love of country right so while I don't necessarily love our country mm-hmm. I the way it is right now I love right. the idea of our country and I, I do love my country, you know, I mean, I, I, I served in the military, I, I love my country, but I love the ideal of my country. And I think that is the most damage that he has done, is he has tarnished the ideal. Yes, other people are looking at us crazy, you know, our president's our mouth is reckless, he te- texts anything, he posts anything, you know, he, he's uh, disgraceful. Yes. You know. Somebody tweeted that the rest of the world watches America right now like America watches the Tiger King. Yes. Yeah. Like uh, to see what we're doing yeah. next. The foolishness what that we're doing. <laughs> I don't know. God. Absolutely. Other countries laugh. Um, because you know, political times of voting in even Jamaica is like highly violent. It is like a very serious thing. Um, you know, they don't play with their governments. And the government don't don't make mockery, and he's doing that to us. He's giving us um, a bad taste in people's mouths you know, for the country that people are killing themselves to try to get to for some degree right. of freedom from their third world issues. Right. You know, people rather stay where they are at this point. And what does that tell you? If somebody's willing to stay in a developing nation that's you know they get bombs dropped on them once a week by their oppressive governments, and they're like. You want to go to America? They're like, nah, I'm good. A lot of problems. <laughs> good. I'm good. You know. <laughs> You're like, man, you see what's going on over there? Right. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I think this is, you know, this is what happens. And this is the whole point of defund the police. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, the police don't need millions of dollars worth of military grade armament. They don't. Um, but what we do need is better schools. And what we do need is better health care. And what we do need is, you know, better, cleaner streets, access to better food, clean water. Um, Drop some of those coins right in those areas. Yes. And see what it does. We need a change, so why not? Yeah. And it's it's been almost, what is it now, six years. In August, it'll be six years since those boys were shot. In the Boys and Girls Club. Oh yes. Um, right. So that was 2014. Yeah, 2014. And they were they were kids that were doing something right. They you know they were coming back from the you know anti gang violence basketball game. Yeah. And some teenagers came by in a car and just sprayed them. Bye. Just drove by and shot everybody up. I had just left work because that was my Wednesday night, so I work late Wednesday nights. And we could have all been in that crossfire. You know, I, I used to tell people jokingly, because in our in our office, in our provider office, we had a bullet hole in the window. Mm-hmm. On the Holly side. Of the, remember that? Yes. There, there was a bullet hole. And that bullet hole, it never got fixed. And it was mm-hmm. there. And I would tell people, you know, they'd be like, oh, where do you work? And I'd be like, well, I work, you know, here. And they're like, oh, okay. I'm like, yeah. They're like, yeah, it's a little dangerous, isn't it? And I'm like, well... Yeah, but the people still need good health care, even though, you know, and I would be like, yeah, there's a bullet hole in my office window. And they're like, what? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, we had, you know, because we had that patient bleed out in the, the waiting room from a right. gunshot wound. Um, and, and just, yeah, the, the violence has to stop on all sides. It just it doesn't make any sense to me. 
you know who I really want to get on here, and I she's probably not listening, but I hope she is, is is Dr. Hoylet. I want to get Leisha on here yes. to talk. I'm sure she would. I'm sure she would. And I got to get Terry on here, too. Mm-hmm. They are in the heart of Rochester doing big things, so they will definitely get on here. Doing and speak. big things, doing hard things, doing the good work. Yes. Mrs. Ellison, what else do you have for us? Well... I am just praying for our nation and I'm doing my part. Um, I'm becoming a doula. I'm going to provide to black women. That is amazing. Yes, Yes, I'm doing that and I'm planning to open a women's center, hopefully. Um, So the next year or two, all of that should be in place and be able to help. I'm just doing my part. That's awesome. Now tell me about the the. We'll get technical here real quick. The nurse practitioner. Um, what is your uh, practice authority in Texas? Do you have FPA? You have full practice authority. Um. So, Texas is a little bit behind, so okay. I can't necessarily have my own practice. But I run the clinic when I'm there. There's no other providers, so we do okay. have one individual um, running the clinic. Um, but um, they limit. In, especially in urgent care, what we prescribe, we don't do over level twos. Um, that oh, kind no of kidding. Mm-mm. Which is good. I mean, that's good, but it's limited at the state level. Um, yes. So I can I can prescribe it in other practices, but they have to have something from the state to approve it. Oh, that's goofy. Yeah. So now do you have an an MP four like in New York? You have the the collaborative agreement, or what do you guys do out there? Collaborative agreement. Which he, in, doesn't, he doesn't have to be in house. He just has to be within a phone call. Right, right, right. Um, which is in New York, they just changed it that you don't have to have, you have to have an NP4 if the state comes asking for it, but you don't necessarily you have to have it on file. So, yeah. But I, I mean, honestly, any state that doesn't have full practice authority for MPs right now is, is behind, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, the research is clear that we provide safe, cost-effective, and high-quality care. Absolutely. Um, they're lobbying in Texas for it, but they're, Texas is a state where they like to keep things very um, the same and traditional. Yeah. Yeah. So keep Texas. That seems to be going around. <laughs> mm. That's one of the things doing an injustice because we're able yeah we're very very able well again you know the the underestimation of people's capabilities also seems to be Mm -hmm. going around Mm -hmm. Hmm. i wish i had a cup of tea so i'd be like (laughs) right right Right. all right any closing words anything for the listeners authentic and love on each other it's not worth it you know our generations are coming up if you have kids um it's a scary world to think that this is what they're going to be growing up in so we need to do better we need to show them better we need to break generational curses and we can do this yeah we can Jennifer, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So much. I appreciate you. I miss working with you. I'm glad you're doing well. And your little boy is cute as hell. Oh, thank you. Um, I know your girls are big. uh, Yeah, my my oldest is six. And my youngest is three, about to be four. And we have a third on the way. So. Congrats. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Little little, little plague baby, little COVID baby. Yeah. Um, we're going to be seeing a lot of those. It might be a boy, huh? I, you know, here's hoping. Yes. Here's hoping. The rocky world. That's what I've heard. Boys are nuts. I heard, I heard they're crazy. <laughs> I heard the boys are crazy. But I, I want a boy, and I'll tell you why. I want a boy, well, first of all, because I'm, I'm a dad and I'm a man, and I, I want a son. Mm-hmm. Um, I love my daughters more than I ever thought. I could and they've changed my life because sometimes you, you get what you need you don't get what you want 
Right. I think the Rolling Stones said that. I think Mick Jagger said that. Um, and I want a boy because I want to raise a good man. That's awesome. And I, I want him to be in a house with girls so he can learn respect for women. I want him to be in a house with girls so he can learn to treat other people with respect and dignity, even though they have different anatomy. And I hope that that can transition to treating everybody with respect and dignity, regardless of any differences. Um, so that's why I want a boy. That is awesome. Sure. You're going to get what you need. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I sure hope so. I sure hope so. All right, Jennifer, thanks again for being here. Um, if you want to come on again, you are always welcome to come on anytime. And you let me know if there's anything you need at all. Thank you so much. This has been a production of the Nurse Practitioner Oddcast. Quick correction, the amendment which made slavery illegal in the United States of America was the 13th Amendment and not the 14th as stated by myself during the episode. Thanks for tuning in. I'll talk to you soon.